Welcome to the Mind Talk podcast. You are with myself, Nathan, and my co-host, Edwin. And today we have a special guest. We have an Olympian. Um, her discipline is in the long jump. Um, also, she has actually been at three world championships and represents USA. You, the listeners, are going to get a lot from this individual. So without any further ado, um, a warm welcome to you, Miss Fumi Jimo. I hope I said that right. Did I say it right for me? You did. It's, it's fantastic, honestly. So yes, thank you. And I'm happy to be here. Good, 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 good. Really, really good to have you here. So let's start off how, as we love to start off. Um, what was your first memory um, it, when it comes to sports, either playing or watching? So what was your first living memory of a sport? Uh, so I'd probably say my first love was basketball. And I remember sitting and watching basketball with my dad. That was what we did. We would watch NBA Inside Stuff, which came on on Saturday mornings. Yeah. And we'd just watch basketball. And I was like, I'm going to be a basketball player. And I played basketball. I was a huge fan of Akeem Olajuwon. He was Nigerian like me. He was in Houston. I was like, yes, I love this guy. Um, so that's like my first sports memory. My yeah. first track and field memory is like, or just like kind of like sports um, as far as track and field, is watching like Flojo being beautiful on the track and Absolutely. Gail Devers and the outfits and the nails. And I was like, that's interesting. I think I like what they're doing and I like the way they look. Yeah. And I'd like to do that too. So those are my earliest memories. And what was the first sport that you played? Basketball. I was all the way basketball. Like you couldn't have told me anything. Like I loved basketball. I started, um, I guess in sixth grade. Um, so 12 years old and I played club basketball. I played mm -hmm. club basketball for a while. And then I had a coach who was like, who was a basketball coach. Actually. Um, there's a guy named Ronnie Brewer. He played for, uh, Ronnie Brewer, I guess, Junior played for the Rockets. His dad, okay. incidentally, was kind of coaching at the middle school and saw that yeah. I could jump and was like, you want to high jump? And I was mm. like, yeah, let's high jump. <laughs> and um, I fell in love with high jump. And then I started falling in love with other events. Um, and yeah. Going back to basketball, um, what were some of the, the skills that you <clears throat> learned, um, you know, playing basketball? So in terms of... Um, not necessarily just on the physical side and the skill side of basketball. What other transferable skills did you learn in basketball? So I think at least in basketball, transferable to life, but definitely not track and field because I don't think they're really that comparable. Yeah. Well, maybe there are aspects, but when I think about basketball to life, it's like, first of all, number one, working as a team. Number yeah. one, can you work as a team? And you have to communicate. Yeah. You have to be able to communicate. And um, also playing your role, like you have a role and responsibility. So don't try to step into someone else's role and do what they're doing because you have your expertise on this court. And yeah. They have their expertise on this court. And in order for this whole team to work together, everyone's got to do what they they're they're assigned to do. So yeah. that's probably one of the things that I took from basketball. I stopped playing basketball when I was a sophomore in high school. Okay. So I, I was like, mm, maybe not basketball. I think I'm going to go full time track. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the thing. What, what, there's one thing being told that you're good at a sport, but there's another thing that you actually believe in that you're good at a sport. At what point that did you true. get to where you thought, okay, I can actually be a professional athlete? It's funny because I tell this story all the time. I didn't know I could be a professional athlete until I was one. So <laughs> I didn't really, it wasn't aspirational to me. Okay. It was aspirational to go to the Olympics and go home. And to know that I could go to the Olympics and then continue to do this was a new concept in my brain. And I was like, sure. Why not? <laughs> you know, um, but I'd say as far as my segue in was, of course, the Olympics. And so as far as when did I know that this was a possibility? Um, it was I graduated university in 2007. The Olympic Games was in 2008. And I was like, I'm going to try. I'm just going to try. And it's hard to try if you're not still in school. 
and you don't have financial support. So I had to work, (laughs) you know, so I worked, I worked as a coach. I left home. I went to South Texas. I coached at a university. I practiced at five o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock at night. And I was like, I'm going to give myself this one Olympic year. And if I can do it, yay. If not, let me move on to something else. And, and I did, and I guess it was probably not until I maybe a couple of months before the Olympic games that I said, Oh, I'm good. That's probably when I was like, Oh, I'm good. Cause there are a lot of, or maybe just a little bit better than good because there's a lot of good people in college. Yeah. So what, you know, but the Olympics is a whole nother level, but it wasn't until like maybe March, February or March of 2008, where I was like, I think I'd be all right. You know, I might be good at this and I might have an opportunity. That's when I believed it because you're right. There's a distinction between maybe people telling you you're good and you really taking that internally. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, do you think that was probably best for you personally? Because, you know, you get some people you know they already have that inner belief but unfortunately sometimes due to that you know pressure that they put on themselves they don't actually excel and end up performing whereas you in comparison you didn't really have the belief so it was almost like you were just you know just just going with the wind so to speak so do you think it worked for you personally that you didn't have that inner belief and therefore you you didn't put as much pressure on yourself Okay, so I, well, on the one hand, I do think that it worked in my benefit, but on the second hand, I put a lot of pressure on myself regardless. I put a lot of pressure on myself, put my socks on in the morning. Like I am a kind (laughs) of, I'm a people pleaser. I want people to be proud of me. So, and I was just telling one of my athletes today, she's only in the eighth grade, but I'm like, I know you're hard on yourself. No one can be harder on you than you are on you because I am like that. No one's harder on me than I am on me. Someone can discipline discipline me or castigate me and I'll be like yeah I know and I'm going to do even more to myself so I was always hard on myself but as far as kind of having that inner confidence of and I don't know if I want to call it confidence or just a knowing that you were good because I I I was very aware of the fact that it's transient you can be number one and then number 10 and then number two and then like it's transient so I was very aware of that and I think that my awareness of that was a benefit to me because I knew that it can go like this. You know, that was a benefit to me. Talk to us a little bit. How answer the question. No, you did. You definitely did. (laughs) Of course you did. (laughs) Um, Talk talk to us a bit about how you felt during competition. So how you dealt with pressure, um, Mm. especially when (laughs) you being in that type of event, um, you know what's going on around you. It's not like um, hundred meters where it's literally you run and it's done. Yeah, uh, yeah. How did you, you watch do it? Yeah, <laughs> that is so. It is really difficult. Like, and maybe for some people it's not, or maybe they're just not speaking about how difficult it is for them. But it was difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was telling a story. I have a story for everything. I was telling a story today to one of my athletes about getting in your mind and at the long jump pit. You do your jump, you sit down and you let 12 something other people do their jump. That's a lot of time to be in here. Yeah. Um, And I remember one time, I I can't remember which games it was. It was either Korea or Russia World Championships where this little machine that smooths out the um, sand got stuck in the middle of the sand. So they had to fix it. So now we're waiting even longer. Mm. And that's even more time for me to sit here and be here. And it was terrible for me because that I wasn't good at it. Hmm. Um, and I do think that the athletes that excel the best have coping mechanisms to help them deal with that mental, you know, whatever's happening in your mind. I, I started to learn some as I got older, but it took yeah. me a long time. Um, but the things that ended up helping, like I, I'm in, I went and I spoke to people. I spoke to specialists, spoke to therapists to ask them, how do I control all of this that's happening inside of me? Because I, on a regular meet, might have 10 minutes between a jump. 10 minutes is a long time. Yeah. Or I could have 30 minutes between a jump. That's a long time to psych yourself up or to control how high you get or how low you get. And I tend to, when I'm sad, I get to be sad, sad. Or (laughs) I'm like, that was bad. I'm mad, mad. You know, like there is no in between. And so learning how to kind of what I would do is visualize a meter 
and I'm visualizing this meter and this meter is a hundred percent and I don't ever want to be there. And this, yeah. the other meter is like zero and finding out, like taking a moment to say, okay, where am I? Where am I? This is where I need to be. And like trying to control your emotions, trying to control yeah. your focus. Um, but that was a very active thing that I had to do. It was very difficult for me, but that's my experience. One of the things that I really, you know, commend a lot of, you know, elite athletes is having to overcome repetition, you know, going over, yeah. doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Can you just talk to us about um, the early stages of, you know, you perfecting yourself in long jump? How did you overcome those, you know, boring, um, <laughs> those boring sessions where you're doing the same thing over and over again? I loved the comfort of taking this one small thing and perfecting it. I loved that. Um, there were other parts of training that I didn't like, the parts that hurt, but the, hey, we're coming out to do this drill. I am going to master this drill. I loved that. Um, so doing it over and over and over and over again didn't bother me. Um, but I And I actually think that for someone who the repetitions, they tire of them, then we need to talk about where you are mentally and emotionally in your event or sport or whatever because yeah and I, and, I, and you can also you can also be like I don't love this but I love competing and that's fair but you respect it because you know that it's important so for me I loved the minutia of do this one thing over and over and over and over again some people are like oh no coach let me just go out there and jump crazy <laughs> you know and you know we know that that doesn't necessarily work. So if you love just jumping, then you better learn to respect the minutia of the repetitiveness. The repetitiveness. Yeah. And I think that is important. So anytime you want to complain about we're doing this drill again, 100 times over. Yes, because you know what you love doing so well. You want to be better at that. You better take this drill and do it again and again and again. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so talk to us, you, you mentioned briefly about how you spoke to psychologists. How easy was it to, to do that? Um, because me and Nathan have spoken many times about, and we've spoken to some um, athletes who, who performed around the time when you were performing. And I know in the UK, it was, a, it was an area that wasn't really looked on that much. Um, now it's kind of changing. Yeah, how easy was it for you to do that being, and being open with someone like that? Not easy at all, actually. Um, but I will say my first foray into speaking to someone about, you know, speaking to a professional about whatever is going on in my mind was something that was brought to me by my first university coach. His name is Victor Lopez. And he was like, OK, you having a hard time? You might need to go see somebody. I see somebody every once in a while. And I was like, OK. So the thought of going to see someone at that time, it was take the stigma was taken away from me. because yeah. this. This man was telling me he too and I thought the sun rose and set on him. So I was like, you too, sometimes you don't always feel put together and you see someone and you talk to them about it. Yeah. Okay, then I feel good about it. But that's not the part that was hard. He already mm. had me convinced that I could do that. The hard part was finding someone I could talk to. Mm. Mm. Because the person he sent me to was like a university person. Yeah, I'm sure the guy was great. I didn't like him. <laughs> I want to talk to him. Yeah. You know? So that person didn't work for me. So then you have to try to find someone who you want to talk to. And in my career, at least with USA Track and Field, they did offer mental health like services. And I would have one counselor who I liked and maybe I lost track of that person or something happened. And I'd be, I kind of be sad, actually. It felt like a breakup. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't have this person who I enjoy talking to. But I think that taking away the stigma of I need to talk to somebody was not a big deal to me. It was, yeah, I want to talk to someone who I think is really getting what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. I've seen a lot of people and most of them I didn't like. But that's, <laughs> I mean, but that's the... that's what you have to do. I mean, not everyone's going to work for everyone. Uh, exactly. No, you yeah, you're right. Um, that's the thing. There's, there's always, I think for everyone, there's always certain people that you're willing to tell certain information and it comes, it's basically the same in this. You're not going to, there's some people that won't give you the, the vibe that mm, I want to let you know everything that's going on in my head and there's others that will. So I yeah. guess, yeah, you got to find the right person. 
Yeah, exactly. In some communities, um, you know, speaking to strangers is still a taboo. So if you, you know, you had a young athlete and, you know, you had a parent that was, you know, slightly apprehensive about, you know, getting their, you know, son or daughter to speak to um, a psychologist or therapist, um, what would the conversation be um, to that parent? How would you, quote unquote, persuade them that, it will be beneficial for their child or for their child? Well, I mean, I would equate it to anything. I'd be like, okay, let's take away any of the mental health things that are going on here. You remember when your daughter sprained her ankle? We took her to the orthopedist. Mm. You remember when your daughter needed her back worked on? Yeah. We took her to a chiropractor. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, now your daughter's having some difficult daughter or son, whatever. I coach girls, but mm. <laughs> daughter or son is having difficulty you know just balancing what's happening in their mind yeah so why don't you take them to a specialist for that what di- what what is the difference there i wouldn't talk to them with the attitude i got right now <laughs> but <laughs> i'd be like what is the difference and i and i understand that and then we can have that conversation so i'd love to hear their rebuttal yeah when they're like well i don't want whatever it is i don't want my family business out there well how do you know that whatever's happening in their mind is your family business? In yeah. which case, you need to take care of that at home. Yeah. <laughs> but but I think that's what people fear is like, oh, you're putting your your dirty clothes out in the streets. And yeah. sometimes yeah. it's not even about that. Or sometimes it is. But this is a medical professional who has, you know, rules and protocols around their disclosure of your health information. And their goal is to help heal whatever is ailing you. Yeah. And if something is ailing you and is ailing you between your ears, then why don't you get someone who is trained, a doctor or a licensed therapist, to help heal or find coping mechanisms for you to deal with that? I would 100% equate it to the sprained ankle, the hurt back, the tummy ache, whatever, because it is legitimate. Okay. When when it comes to competition, there's some people like who like to talk to their competition when they're preparing for a race. And there's some people who want to stay by themselves. <laughs> what, what type of athlete were you? I'm not talking to anybody. <laughs> but that has more that has more to do with the fact that I, at my core, am kind of a shy person unless I'm speaking on something that I am knowledgeable about. I'm not talking to you. Yeah. And if I need to be working on my focus, I'm not talking to you. I believe there are energy givers and energy takers. And a lot of those people who love to be at track meets chatting up everybody, they are energy takers. They're trying to find a way to gas themselves up for that track meet. So they're taking it from you and you're engaging with them and letting them take your energy. You ain't going to take my energy. (laughs) (laughs) So the answer is I'm not talking to anybody. (laughs) Unless it's my coach or just to greet someone. Don't be a jerk, you know, but like to greet someone and say good morning, whatever, going about your business. but. I'm not, a, I'm not going to be chatty. And, and I find that annoying. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so <laughs> we spoke to a, another athlete and <laughs> they spoke about having wine gums. That was almost their, their comfort. Wine gums? Yeah. Did, did you have any yeah. specific foods before events that, or did you have anything, any items that comfort. helped you? Yeah. That were comforting. Um, and that, you t- that you took um to every event with you um <clears throat> i did <clears throat> but i had to rid myself of that because things happen yeah so i remember i remember in 2008 yeah. right before i jumped the number one jump in the world yeah. which was the jump that helped me sign my nike contract and make it to the olympic Games. so this was like the one right yeah I went to this restaurant. This is terrible. So if there are any children who are in the United States are listening and they know this restaurant, don't do as I do. Okay. This was terrible. (laughs) But I went to this fast food restaurant called Taco Cabana and I got a shrimp quesadilla like 45 minutes before I jumped. Wow. Okay. It was sitting on my stomach, (laughs) but I jumped the best jump in the world. And so I was like, this is my lucky food. Yay. (laughs) But it's a terrible food. I shouldn't be eating it. Uh, And number two, it was like, you know how the restaurants have specials during a certain time. It was a special. So they stopped having it like a month later. So I couldn't rest my soul on that. 
But outside of that, I used to have this like thing. It was like, um, it smelled like lavender and it looked like an owl. Yeah. And, and it was actually a heat pack. You could put it in the microwave or, but it's also like a pillow. And I took it everywhere with me, yeah. everywhere, 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 everywhere. And I left it in like Serbia. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was devastated. And I was like, I can't do that to myself yeah. because I'm not getting it back. I left it in Serbia. I can't really get emotionally attached to these tangible things because what if I forget it? Yeah. You know, yeah. what if something happens? So I actually made a con because actually what happened is I had a, a green one. I lost it. So I bought a purple one and I lost it. And I said, I can't do this. Mm. <laughs> but I really liked it. But I had to. It was like really calming. It smelled like lavender. It was great. But I really took it hard when I lost it. Like, mm. why? <laughs> it's a stuffed animal. <laughs> 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 Essentially, it's a stuffed animal. So like, no, I had to let that go. <laughs> how 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 much support did you have from your family when you're competing? Because we've we've spoken to, to a few people, and it seems to be a lot of people from a certain background tend to have less support <laughs> than others. <laughs> how how was it like for yourself? Now, when we're talking about support, are we talking about like moral support? Um, more about fam- just family, yeah, yeah, being there or even agreeing that you're doing it. So I will say my initial segue in when I was like, I know I just graduated from university, but I'm going to take this expensive degree and I'm going to go jump in some sand. (laughs) Probably wasn't the best conversation, you know, but I will tell you this. My parents were super supportive because I had a job. I was yeah. not getting support from them. Yeah. I paid my own bills. Yeah. I had my own apartment. I did what I was supposed yeah. to do. I was a good child. I graduated from university. They were no money out of their pocket. Um, and I and I told them what I was doing. I said, I'm trying to make this Olympic team. And I'm going to do yeah. what I have to do to, take, to do it. And my parents were like, fair enough. And I knew, essentially, I didn't even go down the road of, let me ask you to do this, this, and this, and this. No, I'm going mm-hmm. to. I'm going to do this. So I supported myself. Yeah. I got myself there. I did the hard work. I did what I was supposed to do. And they supported that. And that was good. So my family was very supportive, a little wary. Yeah. Because they're like, okay, tell me again. Tell me again. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> you know. But once I explained to them what I was going to do and how I was going to do it, they were very supportive. Mm. Absolutely supportive. I think that's probably the key is having that inner belief in the determination because even the the elite athletes we have spoken to that's the one thing that stood out whether you whether you're supporting them or not they're going to find a way to make it to that level um, at all costs Mm -hmm. yeah and I think my my parents kind of knew if I open my mouth to tell you that this is what I'm going to do there's almost nothing you can probably do to stop me I'm going to do what I want to do or at least try so you might as well just say more power to you and let me try. And that's what they did. My parents were not very like aggressive or anything like that. They were like, I don't understand sport. They don't necessarily understand sport. Right. They're just like, okay, sure. You got a job. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) But then once they saw that I was doing something, they're like, Hey, go for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so you briefly, briefly mentioned um, the night contract. And I found that really, really interesting mm-hmm. because sometimes when people, they get a contract or when they get a major funding, where it's meant to kind of help them and propel them to, you know, better performances and just make them all round a better and more well-balanced individual. Sometimes it, it, it almost sidetracks them. They almost, it's almost a distraction. So I guess my question to you is um, when you got that night contract, because that's a big thing, that is something for <laughs> everybody to celebrate. How did you ensure that you maintained, you, you know, your, your level of dedication and performance? Well, let me break this down for you because my first Nike contract was this big, okay? (laughs) It was not a lot of money, but I read the contract and the contract said, we'll give you this spoonful, but if you accomplish this, 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 and this, we'll give you more. Okay. So I said, (laughs) worth it. I left my job. I came back to Houston. Yeah. 
I took the small contract. I moved back in with my dad. I had enough money to, you know, do what I needed to do. Yeah. But it was very this mark, this, this, this. I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I did. So it was, it's not like they said, hey, Phoebe, you're amazing. Let me give you a a ridiculous amount of money. No, they said, we'll give you a little bite. And if you really about that life, then we'll give you some more. And they gave me a little bit more. And now I wasn't making a whole bunch of money, but I was definitely making enough to support myself. Um, even once I hit all those marks, I wasn't making a whole bunch of money, but I made a good, I made a good amount of money my first year. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, I knew I can read, so I can read the contract to see that this doesn't last forever. And it's based off of performance. So if I don't perform, then I don't get paid. You know what I mean? And so that was also, I'm stressful. So now you're thinking. Okay, I don't have a job. I had a job at the beginning. I don't have, I mean, I have a job. My job is jumping, but I don't have anything else. So at the end of the year and they do all their tally and I ended up not being good enough. Mm. Guess what? I don't have money next year. But I mean, Mm. I did have a four year contract. (laughs) But (laughs) after four years, after four years, they could be like, okay, well, you're no longer worthwhile, which is what ended up happening in 2016. They were like, know you but that's fair they're a business you know but um but for me it it only made me be like i gotta work hard or i'll lose it all yeah you know um this is so key and it's and i'm so happy that you broke it down like that because people almost romanticize over you know getting a sponsorship and yeah I've made it. I've made it. And this is why, this is why we, we, we have a podcast because we have people like you who actually just tell the truth. And, and this is really, really, really important for young listeners because sometimes, yeah, you sponsored by Nike, you could, you can walk around with that sponsor, but it's not easy. Only some of the bigger athletes like your Usain Bolts or Allison Felix's for, you know, whatever it's worth. Yeah had ridiculous contracts. I mean, I was making probably less than I would have made if I got a job out of university. (laughs) (laughs) But I was doing what I love. What what would you say was the most challenging um, part of your career? Um, The most challenging part for me was, I'd say there were two things depending on the time that we're talking about early on in my career the challenging thing for me was blocking out all the voices everybody got something to say about what you're doing and how you do it and this that 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 was hard and i feel like 2007 2008 2009 like the internet was like oh we're really gonna start talking about people you know what i mean like i feel like when i was in college i didn't really know about Facebook that well and stuff. I just didn't know about stuff, but it was around that time that, you know, information was any, everybody's stupid opinion was accessible. Right. And they could shoot you your, their stupid opinion straight to your inbox. Right. Um, and you know, it wasn't always nice, (laughs) you know, so I'd say that was the most difficult part at the beginning of my career was blocking out the stuff that is inconsequential. So um, Edwin and I have been speaking about this offline. We've been speaking about, you know, social media and, you know, the, the freeness of individuals just just sending toxic messages. And, um, you know, we've we've discussed, you know, actually having an episode on it from your opinion. From, sorry, from your perspective, what can be done? What, in your opinion, should the social media platforms be doing in stopping you know, this toxic behavior that we are currently seeing on social media? I am not sure that my opinion is the right one, but my opinion is it's not the responsibility of the platform, it's the responsibility of the user. That's my opinion, because you shut down one thing, another one's going to open up. So what you're going to do, play whack-a-mole? That's just not yeah. a, that's not a feasible way. I think that it's difficult. I can't even think about it because I'm thinking about young kids who are like in junior high and high school who have access to social media and you want to shield them from that, but it's so accessible. Yeah. So the real short answer is, I don't know, but the longer answer is maybe just 
you know, teaching young people how to use social media responsibly, responsibly by letting, by bringing an attention to them, like what it is actually doing to them, what seeing certain things does to them and how it is damaging and like letting them take a moment to say, Hey, when you read Forstall that it made you feel mad, sad, scared. Why would you continue to do that? (laughs) You know what I mean? Because people are, people are weird. So it's like, Oh, you get stuck in it. Like, we just see the next one. You know, like, it's just, it's, it's crazy. I honestly don't have the answer. I just say that we need to teach young people how to deal with it responsibly. And that is probably something a social scientist needs <laughs> to, you know, figure out because it's difficult. I don't know. So. It is. It's, it's very difficult. I think one of the things that I've heard, because um, I was listening to, because this is something I find really, really interesting. One of the potential solutions is really adding um, identification documents. So before you sign up to, you know, a Facebook or, you know, Twitter, you must, um, you know, um, upload your passport or your driver's license. Mm-hmm. So just hearing that for the first time, what do you think about that idea? Do you think that would maybe reduce yeah. or do you still think it will be the same? Just This is just a solution. What, what do you think? Yeah, no, I'm curious. Well, two things. Um, what would that do? What is the point of doing that? Is it so that people have verified they are who they say they yeah, are? Yeah, I guess so. Because what, what, what's happening now is obviously people are calling themselves, I don't know, um, Ben Davis, one, two, three. And, <laughs> and that's not who they are. So then, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I think that's one way to verify that the person is who yeah. they say they are. But as far as uh, maybe even like hate speech or bullying, some people don't care that you know yeah. that it is them. So they'll say, here's my passport. My name is whatever. <laughs> I don't care. You're still a whatever I think you are. It's true. So the, the passport thing is good so that I can verify, well, whomever is that yeah. person. Um, but will it necessarily stop people from being hateful? No. Or from whatever it is that's happening on the internet? No. But I mean, it would be nice to know exactly who is behind what account. Yeah. You know. But that's tough, man. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be the person in charge yeah, of solving 100%. that. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not straightforward. Not straightforward at all. No. So, talk to us a little bit about. The thoughts that were going through your mind your first, when you went to the Olympics, when you were in Beijing, because a lot of people have described how amazing it is to be at Olympics, be at Olympic Stadium when it's the ceremony and such. How, what was going through your mind? Yeah, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, opening ceremonies was fantastic. Like, what? It was crazy, especially because the way they do it, you come in by your country yeah. and they corral you and blah, blah. So you're just hanging around the people you know yeah. in the back. And then it, they call your country and you walk out. And, you know, for the United States, we walk out and it's like, U-S-A. <laughs> and we're just like, what? I wish that's how I was. I was like, what? Us? Oh, my God. This is amazing. And the Beijing Stadium is humongous. That's a lot of people saying USA. So, like, it was that part was mind-blowing, amazing, you know. But that's like the you know, the, the tourist perspective of yeah. it. being an athlete and being in it was complete for me was completely overwhelming, mm. completely just jarring. Mind you, a lot of people had professional or junior or international experience prior to going to Olympics. I did not really. Mm. 2008, I took maybe five international competitions and then went to Olympic Games. Those were the only five international competitions I'd ever had in my wow. life. So a lot of people had maybe been on junior teams and things like I was never on a junior team. Mm. I was a late bloomer. Mm. Even by the time I made the team, I was 23. I was older than most people. I just I kind of grew up in like a small little bubble. So I didn't understand that. I didn't know that there were junior teams. No one told me that. I didn't know. I wasn't a contender for something I didn't know existed. I didn't get to a chance to be on a USA team when I was 15 years old and go to a whole nother country. My first time getting on a plane and landing in another country competing was like May. Literally, my first international competition was May 2008 in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. First international competition. I won and it was great. 
I didn't jump very well. I just won, but I didn't jump very well. But I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> this is, I was just so excited yeah. because I was like, I'm jumping into Vegas. <laughs> and y'all are going to give me money for this? This is stupid. I was, I was mind blown. You know what I mean? So Olympic Games, I was still like, I was still mind blown. <laughs> but I think, I think that's partly what makes your, your journey amazing because there's a lot of athletes come through the system they've been doing it since they were like 13 14 they know how it goes and they slowly build up but yours was literally bang like right in it like wow okay yes <laughs> yes i and i came from a small university in a small conference so i'm in houston i went to a d1 school but rice is very small i think there were like maybe six seven hundred maybe not even that much 700 people in my graduating class mm. Uh, these girls at University of Texas, they got like five graduations because they have so many people. Wow. Like I, for the most part, kind of at least recognize everybody yeah. in my class. Wow. So, you know, you also are kind of judged by the competition that you get. And I got some good competition in Conference USA and at my um, at my university, but I didn't get like SEC competition yeah. or Big 12 yeah. competition or stuff like that. I did not know what, I did not know what was what. Mm-hmm. I was just like, I want to jump far and I hope I win. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't really get it really, you know? Yeah, I echo what Edwin just said, that your your story is, is, is really fascinating and it's really beautiful to hear that, you know, someone has come down, you know, a different route. Um, in hindsight, how would you have um, prepared yourself for, for the Beijing Olympics? Oh. Yeah. What would you do now in hindsight? I mean, that's hard to say because I do think <laughs> that I was physically prepared. I mean, yeah. I knew how to jump. Um, and I did take it seriously. Um, so it wasn't like I didn't take it seriously and I didn't know how to jump. I, I, both of those were real. I think that it was just... You know, the only thing that could have been different was having more experience. Honestly, experience is what it is. You can't buy experience. You can't fake experience. I didn't have any experience. Um, And and then maybe the other thing that would have helped was like perspective. And I did have I had friends who had been on that stage, but maybe I wasn't asking the right questions or what. I don't know. But it wasn't ability and it wasn't seriousness. It was experience and just control all that stuff. But I I didn't know I needed that. So I guess in retrospect, maybe being aware that I needed that because how did I, in retrospect, I would have to notice that I'm emotional about this or, or I'm, I'm um, distracted or I'm something. I I didn't know until like kind of reflecting later, like, you we're not all together there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just overwhelming. How do you prepare for being overwhelmed? Experience is the only thing I can keep coming back to. Yeah. Was the feeling the same at World Champs or was the Olympic experience completely different to the World Champs? Okay, so each one was very different for me. So I went from 08 <clears> of <throat> the Games to 09 Berlin and I was very disappointed about how I performed <clears throat> at the Olympic Games. And so in 09 Berlin, I was like, okay, I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to go find a, a coach, you know, that I know builds champions, and I'm going to commit myself to that. Like, I made a lot of mistakes. And in retrospect, I'm like, oh, God. Um, but they're all experiences that I value very greatly. So I went to Germany. I trained in Erfurt, Germany. I was trained by Eric Drexler, who coached Heike Drexler, a German long jumper who I adore, right? Yeah. And I was like, can't get better than this. I'm gonna get Eric Drexler. But guess what? I'm in Erfurt, Germany. I don't speak German. <laughs> I'm all alone. And I was yeah. sad. Yeah. I was completely depressed. Mm-hmm. Complete I was by myself. So we talked earlier about the doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. That becomes ridiculous and just like I hate this when you're just not happy anyway. You know? And so I was there and my intentions were good. I wanted to get a good coach. I wanted to focus. But the way I did it wasn't good because I was alone. Mm-hmm. You know, I was alone and I was sad. I did not enjoy myself. Mm-hmm. I ended up losing like a bunch of weight. 
I didn't have any mm-hmm. power. Mm-hmm. My coordination was off. And I put yeah. a bunch of pressure on myself because I was like, oh my God, you know, I got this contract. They think I'm mm-hmm. going to do well. I didn't do well at Olympic Games. I'm going to come back at World Champions to do well. And I did terribly. Mm-hmm. I did absolute crap. It was terrible. And I, like a fool, decided to go to the internet and see what people had to say. And it was terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so that kind of, those first two years kind of set the tone for the rest of my career and mm-hmm. battling. And mm-hmm. it shows in the numbers. It shows in the distances. It shows, it shows, you know, and I can see it and I remember it and everything. But I struggled with that. I was a good athlete, but I struggled a lot. I struggled mm-hmm. a lot with just things. You know, 2009 was tough, so it didn't it didn't get better. I was no longer overwhelmed. I I by external forces. Yeah, yeah. I was now overwhelmed by myself. I yeah. I, I put myself in overwhelming situations, mm-hmm. and I was one of those people who's like, if it if it's working, it hurts. Like, oh, this pain is worth it. That is so stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not true. Like, oh, I'm struggling. This must mean it's working. No, it means you're struggling. Mm-hmm. You know. And I didn't get that. And I get that now. Like, you're actually allowed to be happy. It's okay. You don't have to. But I didn't get that. I didn't get it. And I get it now, but I'm too old to jump. So, <laughs> you know, it's too late. But Overcoming disappointment is, you know, something that, that's part and parcel of being an athlete. So for a young listener, um, in your opinion, what are the, the, main, the main ingredients to ensure that you overcome disappointments during, you know, your career? Um, so you have to figure out, about, figure out first, what is it that disappointed you? Is it your result? Did the result disappoint you? Okay, well, what led to that result? Did you execute poorly? Okay, you executed poorly. Okay, let's talk about why you executed poorly. Yeah. Was it because you were stressed? Were you late? Were you hurried? Whatever it is. Then you fix that. Don't dwell on the I am disappointed or I did poorly. Yeah, yeah. Dwell on what you can do. And I, I speak to my athletes always in affirmatives like, okay, tell me what you're going to do. Well, I'm not going to, uh-uh. Don't tell me what you're not going to do. Yeah. Tell me what you are going to do. Okay, you did poorly in that. I agree. You did poorly. That was a terrible 100 meters. Now, now, what don't we like about it? it? Was a slow time? Yeah, it was a slow time, but you didn't push out the. Tell me what you're gonna do. Well, um, coach, I'm gonna make sure that my first step isn't too short. No, I'm gonna drive out the back. Yeah. I'm gonna make sure my first step is good because I learned in sports psychology a long time ago, and it stuck with me, and it works for me to speak to myself in affirmation. Yeah. So I can say, this is what I'm doing. The mind doesn't understand negations. I'm not going to. Oh, no, your mind is going to do the not that you just said you were not going to do. I know that was kind of silly, but like it makes sense to me. And if you do that enough, if that's your behavior enough, you can change the troubled thinking that you have by speaking positively what you're going to do. So you had a bad result. You need to move on from it. Let's trace it back and find out what made that bad result. Fix that. Because we can also sad for ourselves. I'm not saying I don't commiserate with you. I've been sad a lot. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, in order to not be sad again for the same exact thing, let's work our way back, find out where the problem began, and fix that. Mm. And then next time, you can say, I'm proud of myself because that didn't happen, but maybe I'm disappointed because this next step. Okay, and now you're getting closer to doing it right. So that's how I would break it down. And I think it takes time to have that conversation with a young person, but you have to take the time to have that conversation with the young person. Yeah. So I will sit you down. You ask me that question. All right. You asked for it. Sit down. Let's talk. And we'll talk about that. Cause don't come by the way, ask me, Oh, how do I get over it? <laughs> sit down. Let's have a whole powwow about this yeah. because yeah. I mean it. And if you ask me again, we're going to have the same powwow again. If you mean it, if you really don't want to get stuck in that moment, and that's hard. Yes. It's hard. I get it. You know, and that's why I, while at the same time, I am, matter of fact, I am super gentle because no one changes their behavior like that. Yeah. yeah. If so, then teaching would be stupid. You just go read what you needed to do, and then all of a sudden you learned it, right? Yeah. And that's not necessarily the case. A lot of times when people are sad and they stay there, that's a behavior that they've learned. So why don't you change your behavior when you deal with sadness? 
by doing something else. 100%. 100%. You spoke a little bit about um, changing coach. How how difficult, how easy was the process when it came to changing coach? Yeah. For, let me find a good way to say this. I technically had the same coach the whole time, my university coach, but there were times where maybe I wasn't happy with what was going on. So I was like, let me try to go this other place. Because I do think you outgrow certain things or maybe you hit this and it's no knock on the support that you've gotten because support mm-hmm. can continue to happen. But if you feel like you need a different stimuli and mm-hmm. that's what I was always seeking was different stimuli. So I had a few coaches. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I had the same coach, but I had a few coaches. So I had my college coach and then I went to Eric Drexler and then I went to the Olympic Training Center. I did not like it. And then I went back to my college coach. And then at the very end of my career, I went to IMG. (laughs) So I had like four coaches in a decade, which I don't think is excessive. And one of those coaches was there the entire time. Okay. So he supported, he was supportive or a coach or both the entire time. How difficult it is. It's really difficult if your name is Fumilai Ojimo because you don't want to disappoint anybody. Yeah. So that was actually super difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that coaches should not be an issue for the coach. Um, and they'll, they'll support you. Um, and it's not always the best decision to switch coaches, but I don't think it should be like a huge contingent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because if an athlete comes to their coach who has been supportive and says, I think I need to switch coaches. Something's not right. (laughs) Clearly, whether it's emotional, whether it's mental, whether it's actual coaching, whether it's expertise, I don't know what it is, but if you're not happy with the tutelage that you're getting and you voice that the person who you're voicing it to can be hurt in the moment, but has to think clearly something that you crave. I'm not giving to you. And either has to try to figure that out or be supportive of that person moving on. Um, and that, that can be difficult. I think people do it in a lot of different ways. I just straight up said, I think I need something different. Do you support that? It was maybe a little bit tough, but super supportive, you know? There's always, so there's been always a discussion, especially individual sports. So, you know, I watch a lot of, you know, athletics, tennis and boxing and there's always a lot of you know changing coaches and there's always that discussion about um sometimes is it a problem if you change coaches too many times where is your stand on that do you think that maybe an individual can can change coaches too many times or do you just think actually it's just down to the individual if they know that something is not right with that coach they will move on where where do you stand on that whole um you know topic i do think it's individual because unless you know the story of each individual athlete you don't know why what if they went to one coach and then that coach was like i'm gonna soon retire and then they go to the next coach and then that coach kind of is a more power person and they're like i know that's not me i'm more of a speed person so then they go and, you know, a lot of it is trying to find the person that works for you and being in an individual sport. I don't think that that's necessarily terrible. Yeah. But if if you know the person, you're like, oh, you're kind of fickle. Well, then that's a fickle person, <laughs> you know. But I don't think it's necessarily terrible. Now, what I do believe is it's hard to have continuity of training, which is important. Yeah. So that's the risk the athlete is taking. But I don't think switching coaches is necessary or switching often and then who says what's often? Like someone might say, oh, when you had four coaches in 10 years, that's often. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it is. But or but also, I, I'll tell you this, at least in track and field, sometimes it can be financial. Maybe I can't afford to do this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can't afford you, coach, so I got to go to another affordable coach, you know? And that's a circumstance. Like when I say I've had four coaches, I have my university yeah. coach who was there the whole time. Then I had the coach in Germany. I wasn't going to stay in Germany. I had to leave. I knew that wasn't working for me. So that's number two. Then I went to the training center. I didn't like it. You know, I just didn't like yeah. being there because, again, I was alone. I didn't have family. Yeah. So I was like, I got to leave. And yeah. then my last coach was my last year right before I retired. I was yeah. like, 
I'm about to retire. Let me find, <laughs> I'm about to shake this up real quick. Mm-hmm. And it was a good experience. It was a good experience, but um, it was just kind of late, you know? So the switching of coaches, I think it's more about the athlete. Are you a fickle athlete? Well, you're just a fickle athlete. That's your problem. <laughs> when it came to retirement, was that something that was easy? Was it something to do with you just done or was it to do with um, physically? Uh, it wasn't physically because actually I was in the best shape I had ever been in. It was financially and mentally. Um, financially, mm-hmm. I spent 2016 being unsponsored. I didn't have a sponsor. I was living off of money I had saved. And I had a good amount of money that I was like, I wasn't working. I was yeah. an athlete who supported themselves. So I, as far as yeah. my terminology of professional athlete, in 2016, I was not a professional athlete in the sense that um, I was sponsored by a shoe company. I was living off of prize money or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what the definition is. I, 2016 was kind of one of those years where I've got a good amount of savings. I, I can make some prize money. Let me do this. And I was getting some support from IMG for what it's mm-hmm. like. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that was tough. I was 32 years old and I was tired. Yeah. <laughs> I was tired. Mm. And honestly, I, had, I didn't make the Olympic team. So that, that hurt my little feelings, you know. Yeah. I didn't have a shoe sponsor. I had more competitions after Olympic Games. And one day, literally, this is what happened. I packed my bag and I walked to the track or rode my bicycle to the track. And I started warming up. And then I picked my bag up and I was like, no, I'm done. I'm tired. And that was it. Okay. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard that type of story many times. I mean, times, when you I've know, been, you literally. know. When you know, you know. And I was like, yeah. I don't want to do this i don't want to be here right now and so the minute i'm like i don't and i had a flight the next day yeah right i was like i don't want to be here i don't want to do this and i love track and field but i didn't want to do it anymore and my body didn't fail me and that's the thing like my body didn't fail me but i was just (sighs) fatigued yeah you know um in the UK, there is a, a football pundit who is extremely critical. And actually, he was a manager and he wasn't a very good manager because he was such a, a great player. It was almost he was pitting um, his own talents with and, and putting them on those players. So I guess my question to you is, because you're an Olympian, mm. how do you ensure that you don't you don't pit your own kind of, you know, um, not expectations, but I guess your yeah. your achievements on your young athletes. How do you ensure that you mm-hmm. just give them that time and room to perfect themselves? Number one, because I'm not a jerk like that guy <laughs> sounds like. He sounds like a full-on jerk. It's terrible. Also, you know, I understand, like, I go to middle school and high schoolers. <laughs> I'm not going to hold you to the physical standards of an elite athlete. You're a child, (laughs) you know, but even for my collegiate athletes who there are a bunch of collegiate athletes who are also um, Olympians. Um, When I was coaching university athletes, I'm not holding you to a physical standard of an elite person. Every single day we are trying to get better. Now the standard I am holding you to is responsibility and being professional in what you're doing. I don't care if you're three or 33, honestly, like this is how I feel. You, it's never too early to learn how to be responsible, how to be coordinated and not coordinated, but organized and how we train. If I say the script is every single time we come to the track, you come to the track, you greet your coach, you warm up, you do it like this. You can be taught that at three. Yeah. So my standard for that is that for everybody, as far as actual capabilities, Capabilities of young people from junior high to college are of varying degree. And so I have no standard of this is it. No. Are you better than you were last week? Yay. Mm. You know, that's actually all that matters to me, you know, but I do think that there is an outside structure that I am very strict about that if you stay within this general structure, and understand the importance of these things and repetitively do these things, then we'll be fine. I'm not going to be like, 
Well, when I was 14, I used to jump out the pit. Who cares? <laughs> I'm a grown woman now. Nobody cares what I did when I was 14. Who cares? You know, and I could make it up. You don't even know if it's true. <laughs> but no, I would never hold someone to the standard of myself or anyone I know or any elite athlete. I might give you some anecdotal information about yeah. what I did at that age. And usually my anecdotal information is you're actually doing okay because when I was seven, I wasn't even doing track and field. Like sometimes I have someone who's like eight years old. I feel like I'm so behind. You're eight. Be quiet. Don't talk to me. <laughs> but you have to like temper people. Like I'm not a jerk is the short answer. So I don't have those problems. What, what was your favorite stadium and why? Ooh, good question. Favorite stadium? Well, Monaco Stadium yeah. is nice. It's a nice stadium. And it's probably more of the atmosphere. Yeah. You're in Monaco. So, um, Greece. I liked being it. Well, sorry. I liked being in Greece. Did not like that stadium. Let me take it back. Um, Rome. Rome. Rome Stadium. It's, yes. it's just a historical yeah. stadium. Rome 1960? Yeah. Come on. Like, yeah, you know, I'm down for that. So, that was a good stadium. Um, I mean, the Bird's yeah. Nest, of course. I mean, that was just overwhelming. I think about them emotionally, too. Like, how did I feel when I walked yeah. into this stadium? Rome, I felt like, this is history, yeah. you know? Beijing was a new stadium, so it was just flashy yeah. and the new thing. But it's nice. But Rome made me feel like, okay, I, I'm a big girl, and I'm running at the stadium where they ran in 19... Like, yeah, yeah I, I think this is amazing. and um. Then there's like the small little stadiums, like the, all around Italy. There's like the small little stadiums that just make you feel good because they're kind of yeah. um, intimate, and and I like that. I like when the 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 people, the spectators, are kind of a little closer to you and you feel their energy because the pits are almost always right yeah. by the rails, yeah. and that feels really good. Like that feels really good. Like I I I. I, I'm a, I don't like people, but I like people at the same time. So it's like, I like you there. Hey. You know, don't talk to me. <laughs> yeah, so that's, those are my things. When you was, you know, with Team USA, um, I know you briefly mentioned about sometimes being by yourself. Um, was there did, was there anyone during your time, you know, specifically when you was at um, Beijing, that you bonded with and kind of helped you despite, you know, your, your disappointing performance. Was there anybody that you built a, a rapport with? Um, so yes, my roommate in Beijing, she's also from Houston. Her name's Ebony Floyd. And we had the same manager. Too. Okay. Um, and we didn't train together or anything, but she was my friend. And honestly, I tell her sometimes I'm like, I love track until you retired because she retired before I yeah. did. And I was like, when you left, that was so sad, you know, but Emily Floyd, she was a one, two, four uh, runner. So she was my friend and I bonded with her. Additionally, one of my coaches from university, Andrea Blackett, who was also my friend yeah. and also one of the coaches for Barbados, she was there with me. So I was comforted. <laughs> my mama was there, first of all. So, you know, I was comforted. and. And while I didn't spend a lot of time with my team, because I didn't know anybody except for Ebony, yeah. um, I, I wasn't alone in Beijing. I had my <laughs> Okay. My last question to you is more to do with coaching. So what made you decide to go into coaching? Because there's, there's one thing, being, being an athlete and being in control of your own destiny, but to coach young kids, who um, kind of depend on you and kind of listen to you. What, what made you decide to do that? Well, let's be clear. I, I will say this. Um, coaching probably called me rather than I said, yes, I aspire to be coached. That's yeah. not my day job. I have yeah. a whole job. Yeah. I coach in the evenings, but I did coach um, as a job for about okay. four or five years. And because I will say, Going from an athlete to a coach, if you know what you're talking about, is yeah. a good segue, um, and and it's a it's a good way to 
take an expertise that you have gained over however many years. And for me, it was over a decade and, and, you know, capitalize on your expertise because that's what any job is, you know, also, you know, you begin to build bonds and you start looking and you see, and you're like, okay, well, I want to do a good job at this as well. So it kind of went from clearly this is a, is a, a thoughtful segue. I feel I'm informed and well-educated um, on my sport. And now I'm in it and I'm coaching these young women and men. <clears throat> and I want to do a good job yeah. at it. And then number two, I would see bad coaches and be like, oh my Jesus, like this is so simple and you're overcomplicating it. Or don't you see this? Mm-hmm. Help this child. You know, and that meant a lot to me. So when I was coaching at the university level, um, that was kind of a segue. And then I stopped. I, I was like, I'm, I can't do the mm-hmm. university thing. Anymore. And I went into, you know, working at businesses and blah, 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 blah. But then what ended up happening was people kept on saying, hey, will you help this one person? So, okay, I'll help this one person. And then mm-hmm. now you love that person. So that person belongs to you. And they're like, oh, will you help this other one person? Oh, I love you. <laughs> and, and, now, and now I do it kind of mm-hmm. like that. And then, and then, and then you have someone say, hey, can you come help this group of girls? And I'm like, you know what? I'm now at a time in my life where I feel like, yes, this is important to me to do. Um, I enjoy doing it. I am giving you the instruction that I, as a late bloomer, learned later in life. Um, <clears throat> I try to educate myself daily on what it is I'm doing. And it is important to me. It's important work. So until the day where being a coach pays great money i enjoy doing it as something that is a passion of mine where i also you know can make a little bit of money on the side but it's more of a passion because a lot of these kids Mm. they don't pay me i just Mm. do it because i love it but i have a job so that and then when that job is closed i go and do this so that i can feel fulfilled myself so sometimes i'm like oh i'm getting just as much of it out of it much as just as much out of it as Mm -hmm. you are if not more um and and that's important to me and you know i didn't understand people before it was like oh i get more out of it than give me whatever i was like you're stupid <laughs> but i in my old age i'm like it's really true like it's really true like i just love being able to teach somebody something go home come back the next time and they remembered it or they did it. Like, that's amazing to me. I'm like, look, learning works, <laughs> teaching works. And this is a, like, it's, it's amazing to me. And then, and then for them, and I'll be like, did you feel that? Yeah, I felt it. And I loved it. And I'm like, Oh, my heart warms. Like those moments are great. But you know, I am in charge of how I distribute my time. I am in charge of how much energy yeah. I put into yeah. it. You know, Doing it as a career is admirable. Um, I think some people stay in it when they need to get out of it. But I feel like, you know what? I'm going to do it the way I'm doing it because I can't tire of this. I can't tire of this. You know, I, I don't I do not do it from morning to evening, but I, I, I love it. So I'm not giving mm-hmm. you half of it. I'm giving you all I got in this. And, and I do know some coaches who are like, blah, 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 you know, do this. I, I don't want to do that. Because those kids, yeah. kids can tell. They're like, my coach is trash. Yeah. He doesn't even care. He sits in the chair back there and says, run faster. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be that coach. I don't, I don't want to be that person, yeah. period. I don't want to do anything where I'm halfway doing it. My mom always told me, don't halfway do anything. Yeah. So, like I said, when I came to the track and I said, I'm done, yeah. I was done. Yeah. When I said I was coaching at the university and I didn't want to coach there anymore, I was done. You know, separate, but. I do it because it really does make me happy. And I, I get to pick and choose for the most part um, what athletes I want to work with. Just because you ask me, let me say yes. Last question. What are the core ingredients of an elite athlete? Whoa. <laughs> you know what? I don't know what the core ingredients are of an elite athlete. But I think that what changes someone from being a good or great athlete can just be ability, but all the things to get you to good, great, and elite are um, being responsible, being diligent, 
um, being resilient, um, being focused, and being teachable, coachable, teachable, something like that. And I think that you can be a good athlete and never okay. get to elite because yeah. Yeah. God said whatever <laughs> about your, <laughs> you know, about your physical capabilities. So all yeah. of those core things that will make someone a good athlete and a good athlete to me doesn't necessarily need to be someone who's breaking records are the same things yeah. that it takes to be a great athlete are the same things that it takes to be an elite athlete. And what changes between all of those might be a, just general ability. You know, like I never try to tell someone I can make your child do anything. Yeah. That's not true. But I can try to make help you become the best athlete that you can possibly be. And hopefully with those tools that can take you to the elite status. Okay. For me, how can people get in contact with you if they wanted to put their child in with your training sessions? Oh, um, well, you can email me. And my email address is my first name, F-U-N-M-I dot J-I-M-O-H at Olympian.org. Perfect, perfect, perfect. This was a really good conversation. Um, for me, um, on behalf of myself and Edwin and Mind Talks, thank you very much for coming on. Um, it was really, really good. What I enjoyed particularly was the fact that, yeah, you've just come from a different avenue. You didn't have the SEC, the Big 12 um experience which is you know wonderful to hear um you know just for people who may think you know it's it's, it's too late i know um edwin can definitely attest to this in football sometimes you get to a stage in football over here and they say yeah you're too old mm-hmm. so um just hearing stories like yourself is just really really good and inspiring so we really 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 thank you Guys, 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 if you are a new listener, as always, as we like to say, welcome aboard. And if you are a regular listener, thank you and continue to share. And until next time, guys, stay safe, stay healthy and take care.